hello everybody and welcome once again to a fresh edition of ESPN's Formula One podcast. I'm Alexis Yunus alongside the gurus, Nate Saunders and Lawrence Edmondson. Still back, Lawrence has got a slightly different background, my favorite background I would say, because all the books just... Just speak to your wealth of knowledge, Lawrence. <laughs> He's probably like, they're just there for decoration. Calm down. Uh, but once again, back, you know, in the comforts of our, our own homes and, and whatnot, still trying to bring, you know, everybody some new information and updates and still some form of entertainment as we, you know, try to ride this pandemic out. So guys, how have you been? What have you been up to? Um, yeah, same, same old really. Just, uh, work, working from home. Um, we also had some very sad news over the Easter weekend that, uh, Sir Sterling Moss had passed away. So, um, uh, I kind of took the opportunity to go back through some of, uh, the interviews I did with him, uh, about 10 years ago now and, uh, reflect on, on his career, which, uh, you know, the, the more you think about it, the more amazing it really was. And so, um, yeah, incredibly sad news, uh, to, to, to hear that he'd, uh, passed away at the age of 90. But, um, uh, that's basically how, how the week started. I know it was a bit of a side note. I know we did get to do a, a quick hit, just you, um, speaking about his legacy and, and whatnot. And I think even after that, I obviously was watching more stuff on television and the news and just reading up a bit more about him too. Uh, Cause my neighbors, you know, they, I suppose their father, um, they're from Australia, grew up with his time. And it was funny because they told me the same quote that you told me, Lawrence, about, you know, if you're going fast on the motorway and people go, who do you think you are, Sterling Moss? And just thinking of that speed and thinking of the evolution of Formula One and the cars back then, it was like, now you would never get into a car like that and go those speeds. But I mean, absolute testament. It's found it interesting that you said he had never won a championship, which is crazy, but he's still so revered, you know, in the motorsport world. And Nate, I have to just go to you. Do you have a favorite memory about him or just something you liked about him? Well, what was, um, it was interesting. I think every person who read that news or <clears throat> knew about Sterling Moss basically ended up down a rabbit hole about Sterling Moss that day because I certainly did the more I read about him you know you end up thinking oh, I'll read about this race and read about that race and Lawrence put it really well in the pe- one of the pieces he wrote on uh, on Sunday that, that that stat about him not winning the championship does him such a massive disservice in a day in an age when there's so much weight attached to that and I think that it showed back then the amount of races he won I mean he won I think it was 212 races across all all disciplines he did over 500 races so you know he was a guy who was incredibly quick over so many different um different things and 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 his career was cut short as well by a huge crash as well so there was something that um sir jackie stewart was saying on the bbc he said if he'd raced into the 60s we could have had you know you, you might have had moss versus jim clark which was you know sort of sort of the i guess the two greats of their of their respective eras from a british perspective so the fact we didn't get that that was actually what i was reading about and kind of regretting that that didn't happen um but yeah an unbelievable guy to read about one of those people that you think must the, the stories you read must be false in some way because they're all so incredible what he did you're like oh this must be secondhand knowledge or you know this can't be how it actually happened so um yeah incredible incredible career to read about yeah, it definitely was. I think after Lawrence definitely shared his tribute to him, um, I went up and started reading a bit more and absolutely fascinating career. Definitely he will be missed. But, you know, as I said before, his legacy does live on. And I think we'll continue to speak about him, you know, in the world of motorsport. And then moving on, unfortunately, we still don't have any action just yet. But, you know, what have you guys been working on and, and writing on? Because I think there might be some news on the on the French Grand Prix. 
as we've spoken about a few times, there's been postponements and cancellations that have pushed the provisional start of the season back. And it was the French Grand Prix at Pau Ricard was when a lot of people thought the season could start. It's a facility that has a private airstrip. There were suggestions that they could run a behind-closed-doors race there. But um, the lockdown in France has been extended, and the ban on big events has been extended even further than beyond May 11th, which is when the lockdown has been extended to. And so that race isn't going ahead as planned on June 28th. So it means that the earliest we'll get an F1 race will be July. And again, it's a big guessing game about when we'll actually start. Um, but yeah, it just shows you that the situation in Europe right now really doesn't lend itself very well to the the run of races we would have had right now would have been European races. All right, when I say right now, I mean, sorry, from, from France onwards, there would have been about f- uh, five races in Europe. So it's still really difficult to even, pre- even begin predicting when we might be racing at this point. I think everybody hopes it's sooner rather than later. But with each race that we lose, it's another... You know, it's a, it's a shorter gap they've got to squeeze everything into, which I'm sure F1 will try their hardest to do. But yeah, it doesn't. It, it's a very difficult one to predict right now. Yeah, and that's definitely something that we want. You know, we want racing as soon as possible. But of course, when it is only safe to do so. And I just go back to some comments, Lawrence, that, you know, Ross Braun made, I think about last week, about probably hinting at when we could have something of a season or how many races we probably aim for and when would be, I suppose, a, a time to actually just do the unthinkable and just not have a season at all and just look ahead to next year but um, what were the details in that one? So F1 is still pretty optimistic that they can get 18 to 19 races into the season assuming it starts in the summer and and that's what they're aiming for they're talking about starting in Europe uh, in the summer we assume that means kind of July maybe August um, with a kind of rescheduled really brand new looking calendar potentially the first few races taking place behind closed doors as well so with no fans uh, thus limiting uh, the potential restrictions you might have on large gatherings and stuff like that public events and uh, and take it from there and they reckon that if they put together triple header weekends which is three races uh, on consecutive weekends uh, and then a break and then another three and then a break and then another three that they can get 18 to 19 races in that seems massively optimistic uh, it would have to run through to the early stage of 2021 um but it is so dependent on on what each country uh is able to do and whether they lift their restrictions and what restrictions are lifted and where and travel and so on because it's not just the place you're going to it's not just the uh country that you're going to for the race it's also all the countries where the teams are coming from so uh you know that's the uk italy and switzerland mainly for the uh teams themselves and then engine suppliers tire suppliers um coming in as well and so if you have any restrictions on those places from traveling uh, to other countries then of course you can't have a race either so it's going to be very complicated it's going to be very much depending on uh, on on what governments decide over over the coming months uh, but with that ultimate optimistic kind of uh, approach that f1 seems to be taking so far then we're looking at potentially a summer to start 18 19 races through to maybe even january next year uh the kind of other side um the the kind of pessimistic view is that we may not actually be able to go uh racing at all and f1 has set a cutoff date of october uh ross braun didn't specify whether it was the start of october or the end of october when uh f1 would have to cut off the idea of having a 2020 season but if it gets to that stage uh the weather's turned a lot in europe so you're going to really struggle to get a lot of those events uh, back in and of course you're just so limited on time uh, to have an FIA championship you need you need eight races but F1 is definitely aiming for more uh, because uh, they want the TV revenue to come in and at the moment the money is the is the big concern uh, as much as we all want to see uh, race cars on track uh, the F1 teams and Formula 1 itself really need that money that they get from the circuits 
for the races and also the TV companies for showing those races because that's the money, that's the lifeblood that's going to keep uh, Formula One going not only this year but into next year as well and uh, if that really gets cut if we don't have a season then uh, there's some big question marks over the future of uh, some of the teams and, and basically the future of what Formula 1 looks like after that so fingers crossed uh, that things improve uh, everyone's health improves uh, restrictions can be lifted and we go racing in summer but uh, October is that is that cut off date where um, we could see no season at all goodness let's hope it definitely does not come to that although you know a wise man once said cash is king we all know dash lewis hamilton um and that is something that definitely has to be taken into consideration but of course for for now it is everybody's um health and hopefully we do get to have some sort of a season but that perfectly brings us into today's topic where we're going to take the optimistic approach as we like to you know and it's it's super relevant because we're going to talk about the chinese grand prix and i know from just the time that i spent with you guys that this is a massive weekend on the formula one calendar just because of the markets and, and and whatnot there and it's definitely a race that they'll look to squeeze in um whenever we do get a season and unfortunately, it was the first one to be called off when this coronavirus pandemic, you know, starts kicking off. Um, but now let's look at the, the good times of the Chinese Grand Prix, you know, straight from how it came to be, what makes it so special, what's the circuit like, and then probably go through some of the, the more memorable moments that undoubtedly you guys must have covered as well. So let's just start straight from, you know, the beginning. How did it, how did it come to be? Well, the, the very early beginnings of a race in China was back as early as 1998, 1999. And uh, there was a circuit called the Zhuhai International Circuit um, uh, in a different part of China to where the current one is. And uh, and they were quite hopeful of getting a racing uh, going there. And Bernie was quite, Bernie Eccleston, who ran F1 at the time, was quite help, hopeful of getting racing going there because it was such a big potential market. I mean, that, that was recognised very early on that if you make F1 big in China as a sport... Um, you know, you're going to have so many more eyeballs on it. You've got so much industry there that can potentially get involved, sponsors, so on. A lot of money, but um, it didn't. It didn't happen. So the uh, the the kind of commercial deal kind of didn't quite get there, and the track was never signed off by the FIA uh, for racing. So then they looked uh, to a brand new permanent circuit, um, which was going to be built outside Shanghai, um, which is the one we have now, the Shanghai International Circuit. Now it's not it's not in Shanghai. It's actually about a kind of forty to sometimes hour and a half drive out depending on how the traffic is and um, 40 minutes half hour, one and a half hour drive and um it's in a place called Jiading, which uh was originally um or the, the area where the track is was originally swampland and uh, they kind of uh, reinforced the ground around it and built this magnificent huge remarkable uh racetrack and it is not only quite an interesting racetrack from a circuit layout and design it's a remarkable structure in itself. The um, the main grandstand, which is kind of you know the centerpiece of of the whole of the whole uh, area, is, um, is these huge towers that kind of go up, and then these two massive bridges that go across the uh, pit straight. And the media center is actually in one of those bridges, so you get this amazing view over everything. And uh, the paddock is giant. Um, you know the, the the main area is almost big enough to land a plane in. And then you've got this uh, kind of uh, small network of little bridges and. Uh, ponds and streams and stuff that makes up the the uh, hospitality for the teams uh, so it's actually the first time I went there I had to get a map because it's such a little maze out there in the paddock uh, and there's only little kind of dead ends and roundabout bits 
where you can get lost. Uh, I had to get a map so that I could find out where each team was. And uh, quite quickly, you learn like little shortcuts and stuff. But it's unlike anywhere else uh, Formula One goes in that regard. And uh, and yeah, so the first race um, was hosted there in 2004. Again, just trying to capitalise on on the popularity that potentially F1 could have in in China. And it's never really kind of kicked off to the extent that that, that they would have liked. But still, F1 sees it as a hugely important market. Uh, many of the car brands in Formula One see it as a hugely important market. And so uh, we keep going back. And there's also often talk of a second race at some point popping up in China. But um, we'll have to wait and see. At the moment, obviously, we're just trying to get uh, the original 2020 Grand Prix uh, in China un- underway. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a very very different to, to anywhere else we go uh, with Formula 1 but that's pretty much how it started uh, just that desire to capitalise on, on on the money and the potential fan base in China and then just from you know word on the ground because I know you guys of course know Formula 1 journalists other ones you know probably some based actually in China um, what's their feel on, on how it has developed because I'm assuming it has developed somewhat at least even though it's not the, the boom I suppose that you say that they were expecting uh, the funny thing is, actually, the, there used to be um, a big grandstand at Turn 1 and also a big grandstand right round the back of the track uh, before the long kilometre-long straight, which is uh, Shanghai is quite well known for. And actually, they, they removed the grandstand at Turn 1 and they covered up the grandstand uh, before the long straight uh, to turn it into a, essentially a big advertising hoarding. So it hasn't really gone that well. It hasn't really attracted people. But last year was the... Um, the Chinese Grand Prix coincided with Formula One's 1,000th championship race. And that was quite a big deal. And, uh, and they had sell out crowds there. And there's some real optimism that, uh, that, you know, these were genuine fans. And, and, and there is a very genuine fan base there. Uh, an incredibly passionate one as well. You know, they, they will bring gifts for drivers. They will kind of, uh, create their own banners to hang from grandstands and stuff like that. You know, they, they are really, really into it, but it's still quite a niche thing there. So, um, uh, there's one uh, regular Chinese journalist guy called Frankie Mao, uh, who's a, is a good friend of ours, and um, he travels to each race. But uh, that's also an example. You know, you've got such a big country like China, and yet there's only one journalist who can make it work. You know, racing, uh, race out, and go to as many races as he possibly can. Uh, whereas you look at say the UK, and you know, half the media centre is from the UK. There's a huge amount from uh, France, from Italy. Uh, from Spain as well, lesser with Fernando Alonso leaving, but you know, Germany as well still has a huge following. So when you compare it to, uh, F1's heartland, it's still a long way away in terms of popularity, but there is a hope that, uh, that it's kind of starting to grow. And ever since Liberty Media came in in 2017 and took control of F1 again, their goal was really to uh, expand it, expand Formula One in China and also in the USA but those are the two key markets so they're putting a big push into it and uh, I think based on last year's Grand Prix the thousandth Grand Prix the packed grandstands we saw um, it, it is working to some extent but it's it's going to be a slow burner I think and ideally I think they need another another race maybe in another part of the country maybe with a track that looks a little bit more exciting a street circuit or something like that because uh, as impressive as the Shanghai circuit is and as iconic as some of those buildings are that I, that I talked about you know a lot of the camera angles it could just be another racetrack anywhere in the world so um, yeah so I, I think that there's still a lot of work to do there a lot of potential there but there is kind of early signs of, of some decent growth there in terms of in terms of interest in Formula 1 Well I suppose it might help as well you know if they have a certain figure like a driver and I know they do have but what's the what's the development in terms of drivers um, been there like 
Yeah, so Renault has the only Chinese driver currently associated with um, F1. Wan Ju is his name. And um, he actually won the F1's first East virtual yeah. esports race. So, you know, <laughs> if, if we're going, we're on, talking if we're going about on that, how if we're going on that graphic didn't look like bright. it. Yeah, the future's bright for for China and in, in F one, but um, but it 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 goes with the what um Lawrence was saying about our friend Frankie is that you know you for a sport like this you you really need big exposure over there both in terms of coverage and driving, and we haven't had that yet. We have the same discussion when we're talking about F one in America. You know, since Andretti, there's not been a really big name driving in Formula One who's American, and it's the same in China. You you always need that figure. We've grown up in the UK and we've been very lucky that there's just so many drivers every year. I mean, in my lifetime, I don't think there's been a year when there's not been a British driver on, on the grid. And it makes a huge difference just in terms of interest here. So um, hopefully Zhu can make his way um, through the ranks. I mean, Renault's got quite, quite a few talented young guys there. So um, if he can kind of make that step up, I think that, that would probably make a big difference in terms of the, the, the local interest. And then that helps to generate the push for the second race. And then, you know, the whole interest really just kind of, I guess picks up and snowballs from there that's true i think definitely having a a sort of figurehead like that would definitely help but shall we get into some memories now some iconic moments because i love when you guys you know turn into my grandpa and tell some lovely stories (laughs) not aging you or anything at all but i suppose we can take it back to 2006 where a certain man that you may know of michael schumacher of course had his 91st and and final win um, there in Formula One. Um, Lawrence, were you there for it? That was a little bit before even my time. Uh, <laughs> even Grandpa Edmondson wasn't attending races at that point. Um, but no, it, it, it's one I remember watching very clearly because it was, uh, I think I was at university at the time, but it was, um, it was a fantastic race because it, the championship was still very much alive. It was Michael Schumacher versus Fernando Alonso uh, for the World Championship. We knew by that point that Schumacher would retire at the end of the year. Uh, he'd already announced that in Italy. And so, um, you know, this was uh, such a big deal. And you had two uh, top teams, Ferrari, Schumacher driving for Ferrari and uh, Alonso for Renault. And uh, it, was, um, it, was, it was a very exciting race. Schumacher started sick from the grid, but managed to um, get his way forward. The track started off wet and then it started to dry and that played to the strengths of his car at certain points and then Alonso's at other points. And um, Schumacher managed to get the lead uh, thanks to basically some clever tyre strategy and looking after uh, his Bridgestone tyres. Back then it was a tyre war, so you had Michelin tyres on the Renault, Bridgestones on the Ferrari, so they were acting in different ways throughout the race. And then it came down to uh, the final few laps. Alonso was closing in on uh, Schumacher. He again had the faster car towards the end of that race. Um, but he just finished three seconds off. And um, at the end of that race, so that was back then, it was at the end of the year. And um, there were only two races left after that. And they went into those two races tied on points, Schumacher and Alonso. Um, unfortunately, uh, the kind of sting got taken out of the tail of the season by... Um, a Schumacher engine failure in Japan which was the next race at Suzuka and uh, that made it a fairly kind of foregone conclusion for the final race in Brazil where Alonso uh, did 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 win the um the championship but uh it's you know it's it, it's nice memories that kind of two real top teams arguably two of the best drivers ever in Formula 1 going for the title and that race uh, was a crucial one and it just so happened even though we didn't know it when uh, he crossed the line that it was uh Schumacher's final final victory in Formula 1 but um, yeah I've got I've got good memories of that race 
Uh, also good memories of not having to sit there making notes or kind of, you know, worry about post-race interviews or anything like that. It was one of the last races I remember watching without any kind of work attached. So, yeah, it was um, it, it, it was a good one. W- one worth trying to dig out on YouTube if, uh, if anyone gets the opportunity over the coming weeks. Yeah, talking of memories of that, so... Um people people who have insulted me on social media probably won't believe this but i grew up as a huge ferrari fan and michael schumacher fan he was my kind of hero growing up like i had a ferrari flag next to my um in my bedroom kind of next to where i slept and i took that with me two weeks before this race i'd gone to monza with my dad for the italian grand prix which is still the best event of my life i've ever been to and schumacher won alonso's car broke down right in front of us and the whole tifosi went mad and everyone left monza believing that Schumacher was going to win the championship. But at the end of that race, as Lawrence mentioned, he announced he was retiring. So suddenly there was, even though there was this huge swell of support from anyway, it was suddenly the realisation that this is it. This is his only chance to, I mean, it's not like he hadn't won championships before. He had seven of them, but there was just this feeling that he had to win with another one. So when he when he won in China and he went level, I remember for about a week afterwards, I was just, you know, just absolutely buzzing from a, I was 16 at the time, you know, and it was, it was, as Lawrence said, we were kind of robbed of seeing it go to the wire because the Ferrari engine failed at the next race. But at that moment in China, it was, it was set up so well. And, um, yeah, actually watching it again, I forgot how close it was at the end. It was a really, really entertaining fight. And it's a shame that we didn't get to see Alonso Schumacher more obviously with Schumacher moving on um if it stayed for the next couple of years when we had Hamilton added into that mix and Raikkonen added back into that mix as well you know it it was still a great era for Formula One but it could have been you look at it and you're like oh man this could have been even better if Schumacher had, uh, had stuck around so yeah really really good memories watching that again well, you just gave me the perfect segue now into the next um, point slash memory that we hope to rattle through because Nate so meticulously went through and made a list of all the points that we have to go through. Of course, unfortunately, I wasn't there for any of them. Um, some of you were there for them. Lawrence definitely was not working in 2006. <laughs> I won't age him that much either, especially when Nate just said he was 16. But... Um, Moving on to the next one, of course, it has to be Lewis Hamilton and, you know, him basically in 2007, as you said, blew his chance at, at, at winning the title, which is so uncharacteristic of Lewis. Well, it's uncharacteristic of him, of him now, but early, early yeah. Lewis sort of would always walk this tightrope between the absolute incredible stuff he could do and then somehow you know, making things as difficult as possible. And then we'd, we'd see that a year later in Brazil, obviously, in 2008, when he only had to finish fifth as everyone said and he just literally just finished fifth he did it on the final corner and that was what was quite compelling about watching Lewis when he was young was that he was always on this fight you never knew what was going to happen with him he was so quick but there was just sometimes things would happen and China again you know I can remember watching that and there was an incredible it was just an incredible story that whole year with him and um, Alonso McLaren and Lewis they stay out too long on the wrong tyres and the, the the pit lane, I think it's probably the most infamous pit lane in Formula One now, just because whenever anyone goes through there, you just you can just remember Lewis's car kind of going just a bit too wide, ending up in the gravel trap. And and then I, what I remember, and I, I I watched it again, and it's amazing to see is Ron Dennis is there, kind of gest, gesturing to the marshals to push Hamilton's car out. And Dennis was always very reserved. I mean, you you spoke to Ron Dennis last week, you know, the guy that doesn't often wear his emotions on his sleeve that well and he was there you know frantically telling them to push it because i think everyone realized at that moment that this guy had this great chance to win the championship and didn't do it um 
and yeah, just a, just a, and it brought Kimi Raikkonen right back into it as well. You know, Ferrari had kind of been dead and buried, and he won that race, and then that brought him in, and obviously he won the following race. But I'd say if you were to ask most fans the moment in China they remember, it's Lewis kind of going into the gravel trap, and um, the the UK press at the time again. So by this point, I'm 17 in the UK, and Schumacher's gone, and I'm kind of you know the the, the Hamilton the Hamilton news all year had been incredible, um, and suddenly. I've always felt, I wonder if Lawrence remembers this differently, but over here, people have been talking about him winning the championship. As soon as that happened, even though he went into the next race with the championship, people were already acting like he'd blown it because it was such a big chance to win the, t- the title. And obviously then things went against him in Brazil. So it was really interesting how that swung around and suddenly he went from champion-elect almost to basically a guy who a guy who wasn't going to win the championship. It was just, it was drama, like sporting drama at its absolute best. It's kind of what all sports need to have every so often. It's funny to hear you talk about this, Lewis Hamilton, of course. I know we did um, just a little bit uh, when we were talking about Lewis and, and Nico Rosberg and just that the rivalry and how it went too. But And then, of course, the fact that I spoke a little bit to Ron Dennis about it too and he spoke about Lewis, you know, maturing through the years and you're thinking of Lewis back then compared to now. And I always say this when I watch like Serena Williams, I say, you know, on their day, nobody's going to beat them. Sometimes the only person that can beat them is literally themselves. And that sounds like kind of what it has been um, for Lewis. And Lawrence, what about you? Any memories of that specific race too? Yeah, it was, it was a crazy one. Because uh, you could see, it's very rare with, uh, with Formula 1, you can kind of have an inkling of what the strategy should be and you can kind of you know, think that, well, those tyres are clearly going off because the lap times are going down. But with, with that incident, you could see the canvas of the tyre, the white kind of bit of the tyre underneath the black rubber come through on the right rear of Lewis's car. And so you could see that he was in, having this huge problem, and yet they were keeping him out, keeping him out. And then he slivered off into that gravel trap. And funnily enough, I don't know what year it happened, but they, they've removed that gravel trap now. So if the um, if it had been kind of last year that that race had taken place, or you know the, the layout of the circuit from last year, then there's no gravel trap there, and he would have just run a little bit wide, gone onto some extra tarmac, and just carried on, and probably would have won the championship there and then. So yeah, it was. Um, I, I remember it uh, being a a massive deal at the time and uh, as, as Nate said I think you know the British press almost lost faith in him in, in that moment uh, but it wasn't really as much as it was Lewis's driving error it wasn't really his his fault you know the team should have brought him in they they would have seen the exact pictures we saw and it's still a mystery to this day why McLaren didn't didn't bring him in for, for that tyre change when clearly it needed to be made and, and clearly even if he had kind of lost another position to Alonso it would have put him in a much stronger position getting into that final round and uh, he likely almost certainly would have won the championship because in the end he lost that championship by a single point to Kimi Raikkonen. Both the McLaren drivers, Hamilton and Alonso, were on exactly the same points and Kimi Raikkonen had one more point than, than the both of them and uh, and won the championship. So That was what was crazy about it at the time, wasn't it? Was because it wasn't it Lewis wasn't the guy playing catch up. He was in the he was way ahead in the championship and in that position, that's where you always play it as safe as possible. I spoke to a load of the guys involved in Brazil 2008 and they said that what almost cost them big time in 08 was that they almost went too conservative because obviously Lewis had the, the advantage then. But I think a lot they learned a lot of lessons from that Brazil, uh, sorry, from that uh, China race the year before. But um, that's what, yeah, that's why it was so baffling because they didn't need to, that's a hugely risky thing to do to leave your driver out when you don't need him to win the race. So um, I'm not sure if anyone ever really answered what happened there. I think it kind of, because there was all the, that, that was like, probably about fifth on the list of issues that year for McLaren. They had Spygate that year. They had Alonso Hamilton, obviously, all kicking off. So really, that was right down the list of things they had to worry about. Um, but yeah, absolutely awesome to watch it again. 
So in terms of the blame game for both of you then, am I, am I seeing your fingers slightly go more to the McLaren side than the Hamilton side? Yeah, that was definitely McLaren's fault. They, they should have brought him in. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure what, what, what was going on that year because it was a very unusual year that, that whole season at McLaren with uh, the fight between Alonso and Hamilton and, uh, and the team politics going on inside. So I guess we need for, uh, some autobiographies to be written, uh, to get, to get a bit more of the inside story on that one. Well, Lewis did say, didn't he? Wait till my autobiography's out for the 2016 mechanic swap. So maybe there'll be some juicy stuff in there. Watching the highlights again, one thing I absolutely loved seeing was, so the race before was Japan that year and Alonso had spun out and Lewis had taken a really like memorable win in the, in the rain there. And that had put him seemingly on the verge of the title. When he's, when Alonso's on the podium in Brazil, he's got this smirk on it. Even though he's not won the race, he's got this smirk on his face. And you can just imagine what he's thinking at that time. I, I, you know, I think if he'd, if he'd, if he could have given the title to, to Kimi and not to Lewis at that point, I think he easily would have just handed it over to him. Cause he was that, basically that race was, gave him a chance of still being in the fight. But it, you know, you, you can see what's going on in his mind there. He's thinking, okay, Lewis could have won it today. Somehow he hasn't. And I'm fighting again. So if you can find that video and watch it, there's a moment you'll see the moment I mean where Alonso's just got this little smirk on his face that to, to me anyway it was a guy thinking thank God this is you know Lewis isn't up here and he's not even in the top in the in, uh, in the points. Right, so let's move on now to the next point. Even though oh God I love me a Lewis Hamilton story, but we do have to go on to another big name um, in Nate's list and it is Sebastian Vettel and you know he's not suited up with who he's suited up with today, but his first win at Red Bull this is in 2009. Yeah, and it was also Red Bull's first win. So this was uh, this was a, a huge, huge deal. Um, and it was uh, at the start of the 2009 season, which is best remembered for Braun's domination. So Ross Braun owned the team back then. He bought it off Honda for a pound uh, when Honda had decided they wanted to leave the sport. And uh, and they'd rocked up in the first, well, the, the final test and then the first few races looking absolutely dominant. But in the wet in Shanghai, uh, Shanghai as kind of alluded to earlier, it's a very different track to um, to a lot of other circuits. And uh, and Braun having done no real pre-season testing in the wet, they'd only had a few laps in Malaysia, I believe, um, because that race had been called off. And uh, and Braun, had, had, by kind of just being in the right place at the right time, uh, Jensen Button had won that race, uh, despite the fact that when they got the car back on the grid uh, in Malaysia, uh, they turned the steering wheel upside down and a whole load of water came out of it and they said that the car would never have actually restarted had they needed to get it going because the steering wheel was completely knackered and um, and, and they were not going. So, so they got to China and, and they just weren't quite on the pace and uh, and Red Bull really were. But um, that was an interesting season because it was a season that in uh, kind of the normal spell of things pro- probably um, Red Bull should have won. Uh, but Braun started off so strongly and they had... Um, this uh, double diffuser at the back which was a kind of real uh, innovation in Formula 1 taking the kind of grey area of the rules and expanding it to the maximum and uh, and, and finding some performance there so uh, yeah they um, Braun were dominating but that was the one race in, in that sequence early in, in, in the year that the Red Bull came out on top It's worth noting as well that the, the race went swap places in the calendar that year so it had been 07 it had been a championship deciding race or at least a championship uh, an important race in the championship, so it's gone to the other end of the the season. So it was it really kicked off. It kind of marked Vettel as a potential championship contender that year, and there was such a buzz about Vettel then as well because Lewis and McLaren that year had really fallen off the pace. So we've talked a lot about Mercedes dominating, um, but that year Vettel winning that race was quite important because otherwise we'd have just had this sweep of 
Braun GP victories with Button. And um, I remember at that point, Vettel was kind of, you know, they were calling him Baby Shumi and all these things. You know, he was, there was a load of excitement about him. And he'd already won the Italian Grand Prix the year before. But it, you know, he finally had this, not only was he as talented as we know he is, but he also suddenly had a front-running car. So it really raised the optimism about him maybe getting himself in the title fight that year. Ah, oh, the good old days of Sebastian Vettel. They're not over yet. We can't say they're over yet, but you never know. There may just be another crown prince that wants to come for the throne. Oh, okay. So 2010, um, memories there of the Chinese Grand Prix then, Lawrence, because uh, I see some some explosive things happened then. Yeah, <laughs> this is it. Um, <laughs> so this was before I was traveling to races, but um, I remember waking up very early uh, to cover the practice sessions, and that used to be one of the worst parts of the job was you know waking up at kind of 3 a.m or something getting into the office you're the only one there you've got a can of red bull to try and get you through it and um and yeah doing live blogging and so on but then one of the most bizarre things i've ever seen happen on a track happened uh sebastian buemi was driving down um the long back straight that i talked about earlier slammed on the brakes and the front two wheels exploded off his car just went off in completely different directions um which is pretty unusual to see anyway is obviously it was a suspension failure an upright failure on the on the car but um the fact that by then we also had um the safety mechanisms which are basically called wheel tethers uh, so you have the the wheel itself is tethered to uh to part of the suspension so they're not they really shouldn't go flying off and the idea of that is so that they don't go uh into the crowd or into marshals and so on or into other cars so it was a real surprise because these tethers are meant to steer there. And it, if you go and type F1 GIF or anything into like your WhatsApp chat or whatever, you're likely to find this because it's such an unusual moment, such a bizarre uh, uh, sequence of events. And anyway, so uh, yeah, so it turned out um, they'd had these brand new suspension uprights on there and they hadn't kind of uh, tested them up until that point in, in Friday practice and they just failed, exploded off. And the uh, the tires. I remember one tire bounced down through the runoff area and up and over the fence and uh, and, and into the crowd. Fortunately, no one was injured, but it was unbelievable. Um, I just typed that in yeah. for gifts, and that literally <laughs> there you go. Has yeah. just come up. <laughs> Amazing. Um, well, not yeah. if you're the driver. Yeah, you, you, you know, you, you'll see that in a lot of places because it is literally the wheels coming off um, as 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 he crashes. So. Um, yeah, that was uh, one of my main memories from uh, from that 2010 Chinese Grand Prix. And uh, yeah, but I, I was working from the office back then, I have to admit. I, was, I wasn't actually there on the scene. I didn't see it firsthand. Oh, he wasn't, he wasn't Litty Lawrence yet, but it's okay. He did, he did get there. Nate, I have to go to you as well for this one because um, I'm sure you have some memories, even though you're a wee one in university like me still. Yeah, I mean, um, I used to I used to get up. There was a group of us at uni that would get up and watch these races if they were early. And funnily enough, that year I was writing for the Reading University newspaper, and I'd I tipped Boemi. I was like, Boemi's going to win. He'll be a champion champion one day. And I'd written it the the, the edition before the Chinese Grand Prix. So as soon as I wrote that, his the the wheels literally came off Boemi's career. You could say. <laughs> Um, I don't know why I backed. I don't know why I backed him either. I think I just thought he was, you know, he just looked quite quick at the time. But um, that race itself, this one thing that was interesting going back to these races is you remember the perceptions that you had of people at that time. And but um, we talked about Button winning the title in '09. By 2010, he'd joined Lewis at McLaren, and the 
the the talk really going into that it was quite disrespectful of a guy who just won the championship but everyone said oh button's going to get blown out of the water by lewis doesn't stand a chance and he won this race he beat lewis in this race uh changing conditions which button is just the master of and um it really was it it, it it kind of proved that button wasn't just there to make up the numbers alongside lewis you know he was there and he was a real contender um and that that season 2010 was one of the most memorable seasons in a long time, just because of how many people were involved in the championship fight. Obviously, there's four of them still left um, at the end of the season. Sorry, three of them still left at the end. Or was it four? No, there was four, but... It yeah, was four. Button te- Button Lewis was an outsider, but... Lewis, yeah, had to, Lewis. Lewis had to win and hope all three uh, didn't score any points at the end, right? So it was four. Um, but yeah, and uh, that's just what I remember from that race. And, and watching this back again, I remember kind of everyone almost being surprised at this guy that had won the championship the year before. Had, had suddenly had this new lease of life, this new confidence, because we'd seen eight years of Button not really living up to his potential. Then he won the championship, and he almost had this kind of career resurgence at McLaren. And the Chinese Grand Prix that year was a kind of a good example of, of where, not where it started, but that kind of manifesting itself again. And um, in certain conditions, Button was just completely unbeatable. And that, if you watch that race, you know, he looks he looks really on it. So that's what I, that's what stands out beyond the Boemi beyond me ruining Boemi's career with a, uh, a lofty prediction. So it was you. Now we know who did it. Now we know who did it. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the first time. It's not the last I've made a stupid prediction that's, um, that's backfired. Um, but uh, it's never quite blown up quite that spectacularly, I've got to say. Oh, clever, clever little use of words. And, and Lawrence, as much as you were working and obviously enjoyed the, um, or I don't want to say enjoyed, but I'm sure the exploding tires took a lot of your attention. But what was your take on the, the Button Hamilton little mini saga there, I suppose? Yeah, it, it was, as Nate said, it was a really interesting year because I think, um, Braun were quite upset as well because, you know, they, they'd won the championship, then they'd secured Mercedes back in going into 2010 and Jensen had basically up, up sticks and left and uh, I think they felt uh, a little bit betrayed by him you know having taken him to the championship with that brawn year as well which was such a fantastic one so it was um, but it was, it was great because you had the reigning champion uh, going in against uh, the guy who had won it in 2008 so it was only two years before so you had two very good drivers uh, going up uh, very different drivers as well Button much more methodical kind of uh, needed the car to be in the right place and kind of like you know, a lot more experience at the time as well. And then Hamilton kind of relying on that raw talent that we've seen throughout his career. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it, 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 it was a good, uh, a good period, uh, to see those two at McLaren together. And, um, yeah, that was one little kind of battle along the way that Button came out on top of. But, uh, as Nate said, it was very much kind of down to conditions and stuff like that, uh, for him to take the victory there. Okay. Well, fast forward two years now. I still wasn't working at ESPN yet. Not sure if Nate was. Don't think. No, I was. I was three years away from working there. No, no, two years away. Wow. Yeah. The yeah. I was. Clock t- was didn't start was, the same year. The clock was ticking. Yeah. Wait. I just, no. I started. Twenty fourteen. I started. I just got my five year thing. Oh, well. I started twenty twenty fifteen for me. So there we go. So I was three years away from it, and but twenty twelve now. I suppose we can call it Mercedes's first win, and that was the beginning of an era that we're all still living in, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So that that was yeah. Uh, the team came back in 2010. Uh, they'd existed in 54 and 55 and dominated the sport, but then they hadn't been in the, in, in the sport as a constructor until 2010. They came back and it really took them a while to get going. As we just said, uh, they took over the Braun team, but the lack of funding through that year in 2009 meant the team was kind of nowhere in 2010. And so it took them to the start of 2012 to, to, to get on, on the top step of the podium, but it was a very unusual race. Um, 
to get a little bit geeky here, uh, one of the main things about Shanghai uh, is that it's a very different layout to a lot of tracks and it puts a lot of emphasis on front tyre wear. Now, not that exciting maybe, but it does actually mean that it throws up some quite different results because any car that is able to um, look after its front tyres or is perhaps particularly bad on looking after its rear tyres, uh, tends to do quite well there. And it's a bit of an, an anomaly in the whole season. So the Mercedes was exactly that. It used to uh, lunch through its rear tyres uh, every round. So the car was fundamentally quite quick, quite quick over a single lap, but would just destroy the rear tyres. And um, in, but in China, that didn't really matter because it was all about looking after the front tyre and the Mercedes could do that quite well. So Nico Rosberg uh, took pole position by, I think it's about half a second, from Michael Schumacher, his teammate, uh, in 2012. And it just went to show how well-suited the car was to that track. And then in the race, uh, Schumacher, I think, had a dodgy pit stop where a tyre wasn't um, put on correctly and uh, as well, he, he dropped out and Rosberg went on to win. So... Um, it was a massive win. It was Nico Rosberg's first win as well. He had been knocking around in Formula 1 since 2006. Uh, I think a lot of people have kind of lost faith that he was going to be uh, this great driver that we maybe thought he was coming through the junior categories. And obviously he was trying to live up to his father's 1982 title as well. So um, he was he, he was trying to uh, kind of go in there and, and win races. But it just didn't happen for him until 2012. Uh, but even then, it was it was a one-off. It was a very unusual race uh, for that season. The Mercedes was quick elsewhere, but um, it was a championship that was fought between um, Red Bull and Ferrari. So this was uh, their single race win that year, but it was also the start of, um, of some pretty big things to come because in 2013, they won three races. Then obviously in 2014, when the engine regs changed, they went and won pretty much the whole thing. So And they've been doing it ever since. So... Um, those are the days, yeah, was, weren't they? Uh, when Mercedes it, just won one race in a season. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is strange to think, isn't it? Like it's 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 a weird yeah. thing, but um, but you know, a lot of the same faces. Uh, I I rewatched a bit of that uh, just before doing this podcast, and there's a lot of the same faces on the pit wall that were there um, that are there now. You know, so uh, it, it's very much the same team, and you know, it just goes to show that team that uh, is winning championships now. A lot of them know what it's like to you know get the odd podium here or there, the one win in the season. So they've been there and they've done that. It's it's not always the case that these teams that look mega dominant now are full of people who are just used to winning. They, they, they realise how hard it can be in Formula 1. Nate? Yeah, I mean, fair play to, to Rosberg, because if, if you'd bet in 2010 that he would have taken their first win and not Schumacher, it would have looked like a stupid bet. And um, maybe we should do like a podcast about Rosberg and Lewis. Maybe we should do that sometime. Um, oh, that would be a brilliant <laughs> spoiler idea. Spoiler alert. Oh. Um, but yeah, and you know, but Rosberg. <laughs> but uh, hey, that's a that's a discussion for another day. Anyway, yeah. So Rosberg that season, I remember that. Like Lawrence said, no one really had the faith really in him anymore, and it kind of put him on um, on the map. And that year, there was it's a crazy start to the season where it, it was six out of seven different winners. Um, and really, we, we you just don't see that in Formula One nowadays, anyway. But um, it was the sort of time when you turn a race on and you really felt that anyone could win a race that season because it was just so wide open. Um, so, yeah, I, good fond memories of that season as well. And and Schumacher, I remember being so annoyed with Mercedes at that race because Schumacher still hadn't had a podium at that point. He got one in Valencia later that year. But um, it kind of showed how disappointing his comeback was because even by then he hadn't been back on the podium at that point, um, which, again, you wouldn't have predicted a couple of years earlier. So... Like I said, funny to go back and remember what 
the narrative was at the time and the way people were viewing different things. All right. Shall we move forward now to four years later, 2016? I, I, I enjoyed this story, Nate, when I had to do my research on it, but I'll probably let you guys say it exactly when a certain someone earned the nickname Torpedo. Yeah, well, this was this was the big story that year, and it all culminated with Verstappen being promoted to Red Bull and Kvyat being demoted. Lawrence, I think, would have been at this race, but then I, I was at the, the next race, the Russian Grand Prix, um, where Kvyat kind of cemented that reputation even more. You know, he'd been called the torpedo. I'll let Lawrence take it away from the description of the China um, incident. I think you, I think you would have been there, 2016, or was that one of the years you didn't go to China? No, yeah, I, I was there that year. Um, I think 2014 was my first Chinese Grand Prix on the ground because uh, it's quite a difficult one to get to. But um, yeah, so 2016 I was there, and um, yeah, it was at a time when uh, Kvyat had uh, was 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 Red Bull's kind of you know uh, number two driver. He, he was the guy kind of coming through. Um, alongside Ricardo and uh, the guy who he had replaced there when uh, Sebastian Vettel had gone to Ferrari um, he found himself alongside going into turn one and uh, Kafir, I think as most of us felt at the time quite justifiably put his car up the inside he was fighting for position uh, but that meant that Vettel had to take a little bit of evasive action and that took him into his teammate at Ferrari, Kimi Raikkonen, and Raikkonen went spinning off on on the edge of turn one, and so um, in the end, uh, Vettel I think finished second. I think Fiat was third. Is that right? Um, anyway, uh, they, they they got into the yeah. In, in, yeah. into the podium room at the end. Uh, Rosberg had won, and Rosberg and uh, Vettel are there, kind of talking in German about what went on, and then all of a sudden uh, they stop chatting, and Vettel just there next to Fiat. And they're both kind of looking at the screen. And then all of a sudden, Vettel turns around and he's like, hey, you were the guy, you were the guy who kind of came up the inside of me uh, like a torpedo. And uh, and no one had kind of imagined that torpedo would be the word that would be used to um, describe Kvyat's action in, in, in that point. But it stuck uh, to the point that uh, Kvyat is now kind of regularly referred to as the torpedo because of that move, which again, I think he did quite justifiably on the inside of turn one in China in 2016. Uh, and to be fair to Kafir, um, as Nate was at his story on in, in Russia, uh, and he kind of cemented that name, but to be fair to Kafir, he's embraced that to the point that even, I can't remember which race it was, one of the races quite recently, he had torpedo on his helmet. So he had the word torpedo and a picture of a torpedo on the back of his helmet. So he, he's embraced the kind of uh, Vettel mockery, but um, it, it's it's a great, uh, one of those really great, uh, we call them green room. So like the green room just before they go on the podium and you get to see some proper raw emotions between drivers. Famously, uh, Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton threw some podium hats at each other. But uh, yeah, that, that, that moment with Kafir and Vettel, track it down on YouTube because in terms of awkward moments, uh, it's right up there because Kvyat's there like laughing and saying, ha, 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 we were just racing, we were just racing. And Vettel's calling him a torpedo. So yeah, w- well worth watching. P- p- pretty funny to watch. And funny as well to watch Rosberg in that because he's kind of the the third wheel in that argument. He's kind of sat in the background just kind of watching this this fight break out. Well, not really a fight, but this verbal sparring going on. And you can see that you know he's, he, he kind of obviously didn't know the incident they're talking about. So you can watch his face and he's kind of awkward about it. The sad thing for Fiat was, I think if that had been alone in isolation, he might have been, his career might have been okay. But when we got to Sochi, he absolutely torpedoed again into the back of Vettel and took Vettel out of the race. Um, and then the next 
in the the week between that race and Spain, uh, he was demoted. And I remember Vettel going to the, the to Christian Horner, obviously his old old team boss, and having a word with him there. And um, that was quite a big story at the time. You know, it was Kvyat. I think a lot of people thought Kvyat was very talented, but he seemed very kind of unpolished, like not quite the finished article. And those incidents seemed to really ram that that kind of home for people. Um, but yeah, mad to think now because it, his career really from that point on. You can really see it. it. His career really went the wrong way for him. You know, it was downhill from that point. So, um, yeah, from a Fiat point of view, probably not a race he's that fond of remembering, even though he did get on the podium. It, it was very bad luck as well, because it was at a time when uh, Verstappen was coming up uh, at Toro Rosso and uh, he'd started his second year at Toro Rosso. And uh, both Max and his father, Jos, were pushing incredibly hard uh, on Red Bull to try and get him pushed further up, uh, up the ranks. And it was clear that Max was at that point even then the future of uh, Red Bull's driver programme and Kofiat was kind of standing in the way uh, so yeah in the end it turned out to be a very easy decision for them when Kofiat made such a big error in Russia uh, and um, and that gave him the opportunity to demote Kofiat down to Toro Rosso again and put Verstappen back up um, so uh, yeah it was, uh, it was an interesting time at Red Bull um, around then and, uh, and of course now uh, we look at Red Bull and Max is, is, is the guy lead, leading the show there well, speaking of um, massive moments for Red Bull, I suppose, we can fast forward to 2018. This is the one I wanted to get to because Danny Ricardo. I mean, we could, again, we could talk about him and talk to him probably for hours on end. We will, we will test that theory eventually, but massive win at the Chinese Grand Prix. I actually did get to see this one in a lovely little show that's going around um, in 2018, but uh, I suppose you guys actually got to live it live whether you you know you were covering it being there or not so just just what was that like because it was absolutely it was a nice little tactical genius moment as well from from red bull wasn't it yeah that's right so there was a fairly late uh safety car in that in that race and that really threw it wide open again uh, red bull really shouldn't have been the team that was uh the most competitive there but they took a gamble uh, because they were kind of at the back of that top three team battle between Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull uh, to put on soft tyres at a late pit stop, double stack their drivers, sent them both back out. Uh, Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo chasing down the pack. Uh, Max took out Sebastian Vettel on his way through. Uh, having all, He also ran wide trying to overtake Lewis Hamilton as well, which I think is when he lost the position to Ricciardo. We then took out Sebastian Vettel, so he ruined his chances. But Daniel Ricciardo just showed um, why he is so highly regarded by so many people uh, because uh, he was able to go there pull move after move work his way back into the lead and, and win the race and it was a crucial time for Ricardo um, because his contract was up at the end of the year and uh, there was lots of talk back then of would he go to Ferrari would he go to Mercedes would he be able you know would he stay at Red Bull what would he do and he was really um, kind of lifting his stock with drives like that Meanwhile, Max, who um, we know is very naturally talented and an incredibly good driver, was actually having an awful start to the season. So uh, for Ricardo at the time, uh, you know, all of a sudden he looked like the guy you want because uh, we kind of knew that the Red Bull wouldn't be quick enough uh, to sustain a championship challenge. But it was clear that Ricardo was um, was one of the top drivers. So uh, yeah, he was um, he was absolutely on fire that day, and that's kind of really what we want to see more of from Daniel Ricciardo. Uh, in the end, as it turned out, he went to Renault as a result of all that uh, kind of horse trading over um, the driving market that year, uh, which is 
unfortunately put him back in a car where we don't see him up the front winning races like that much anymore but uh, that one uh, that 2018 race lives long in the memory I think and will continue to do so so when it comes to Ricardo trying to uh, work his way back into a top a top team over the next few years uh, I think that 2018 race will often be used as a well you know remember when he did this he really is kind of a, a driver on you know operating on the top level Nate, I have to go to you because you only wrote a book about Danny Rick, so... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was kind of a shame watching this in a way because, like Lawrence said, he kind of has moved away from the top end of the grid now, so we don't see this. But Lawrence is absolutely right that at this point, I, I actually looked back at what we were, we wrote right after that race and it was basically saying that it was like an audition from Ricardo for a top seat. you know. And by top seat, we meant Mercedes or Ferrari. Because at the time, there was question marks over Kimi at Ferrari. There were question marks over Bottas at Mercedes. And really, it was just a really complete drive. And the contrast of Max. Max had a really messy season. He would have a, a crash in qualifying in Monaco a couple of weeks later, which again cost him a chance of winning. And Ricardo kept delivering in those moments. So it was great. And if you actually, if you find this race, um, his overtake on Bottas to get into the lead is absolutely fantastic. So Daniel Ricardo, a few years later, it might have been at this race, it might have been later, but he basically... Somebody asked him his philosophy about overtaking, and he said, well, I just decided to lick the stamp and send it. And I think it was in the Bottas move. It might have been... He's done so many of these, like, late-breaking, but he basically... He's coming up to Bottas, and Bottas is, I, I, I guess, is almost timidly defending the corner, but also is, I guess, wary of, of crashing out of the race late on. Um, and Ricardo just... There's not much space on the inside of the corner, and he takes it, and he did outbreak... Uh, out, outbreak to pass Lewis about two laps beforehand so it's quite a good checklist of drivers to have passed Vettel Hamilton Bottas to win the race and most of Ricardo's wins if you look at them um you know are all very similar to that he's kind of he gets this sniff of this idea someone's you know something happens and suddenly it's like oh you could win this race and suddenly it's like he steps up a gear to to this winning uh this winning drive that we always see so really great to watch and um yeah it, it's a shame we haven't really seen him up the front yeah, it's it's been two years now, which is sorry, it's been it's been one year or two years if we're including this one, um, and that seems really not like a really really long time ago that Ricardo was at the front winning races. I'm all for more Danny Rick time. Yeah, and this as well, you've got to feel for Bottas in this race if you watch it because Bottas was having an incredible race until, and funnily enough, it was the two Toro Rossos that crashed into each other. So obviously, Red Bull's junior team. And then that allowed, just because of the timing of when the safety car came out, Bottas and Vettel had just gone past the pit lane. Safety car comes out, so the Red Bull drivers are able to jump in. So it's one of those things where some funny you know, circumstances leading up to it. Ricardo's engine had failed the day before, so he had actually started way back in the race. And all the talk was about how frustrated he was getting that he wasn't having this winning car. And then suddenly he wins this race. So it was just remembering all that stuff that was going on was, was really, yeah, it was just great to kind of reminisce on it. But, but let's be honest. I mean, it is unfortunate. I mean, well, you never know. You can't put, we can't, can't keep a good man down. At least that's what I'm hoping. We hope to see some more exciting fireworks, you know, at least on the circuit, you know, from Danny Rick, not just on his social media, because he's up to some pretty interesting stuff today from what I saw. <laughs> so that's just proof that you can't keep a good man down. Well, I suppose that just leaves us with, you know, last year, any, any fond memories? there guys before we wrap things up because obviously now we're just thinking of what could be Nate's taking a nice long think I'm trying to remember I know Lewis won the race but the Mercedes did a pretty impressive double stack pit stop last year uh, so Red Bull did similar but they had a big gap between their cars but last year Lewis and Valtteri basically 
I don't think there was much of a gap between Bot- uh, bit Hamilton being in the pit and Bottas being in the pit. Um, I remember that being pretty impressive to watch. But yeah, last year, the start of last year, it's hard to remember individual moments because Lewis won so many of the races. It kind of all it's kind of all blurred together. But again, Lawrence was there, so he probably remembers better than I do what what was going on. Yeah, no, I, I remember that. Um, it was also. Uh an unfortunate moment for Valtteri because we, at that point we thought Bottas was going to be you know quite a title contender and uh, I think I'm right in saying he he qualified on pole but then uh, got some wheel spin over the over the line the kind of checkered flag line that goes across the track and that kind of cost him position into turn one but um, yeah it's uh, I don't have a huge amount of memories from that from that race I have to I have to admit um, but uh, yeah it's a, it's an interesting place to go to every year though and um it's uh, it's a place that's changing dramatically as well. Like if, if I remember, even this short period of time I've been going there, the skyline from that you can see from the media centre in the opposite direction from the pit straight uh, is building up quite quickly. And um, yeah, Jardin itself, which I think was originally a very small kind of almost walled city uh, with a moat around it, um, kind of you know probably about twenty thirty years ago, is now expanding rapidly. And it's uh, you know it's, it's very very much a case of China so yeah a lot of my thoughts or memories of China are kind of negotiating my way through traffic jams and uh, on the underground and stuff like that trying to move around Shanghai uh, which is always fun and then um, yeah and then so hopefully we we can go back fairly soon and uh, do it all over again because it it is a good circuit even though it's um, it's a fairly modern circuit so Herman Tilke circuit it is actually still a very good circuit for racing so um, yeah hopefully it's one where we will go back to this year and uh, and create some more memories, get another race like 2018. Well, thank you guys. I love your memories. I love when you turn into my grandpa, as I said, <laughs> even though we just discovered that Lawrence is the true grandpa of the group. I, I didn't even know. <laughs> Lawrence was working when Nate and I were still piling in our, our final exams at university. <laughs> I, I hide my age well. I carry it well. Unfortunately, oh. if you stood me and Lawrence next to each other, people would guess the other way around. So I think Lawrence wins in that, in that sense. <laughs> Nonsense. I say your rosy cheeks bring it back, Nate. Your youthful rosy cheeks. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, hopefully we can get, you know get together and have another great podcast soon come next week we have so many ideas to keep everyone entertained and busy hopefully you know they do get to come into light and and we can continue making the most of this well we want to say downtime but hopefully we do really get some action sooner than later once it is completely safe to do so 